Peter seizes the opportunity to preach the gospel and says, Don't think that it was by our power or our piety that this man was raised up. You killed Jesus, the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and it's in his name, by faith in his name, that this man was raised up and is walking well. And then he says later, verse 17, And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ should suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for establishing all that God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet from your brethren as he raised me up. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul that does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came afterwards also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God gave to your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your posterity shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So God, having raised up his servants, sent him to you first to bless you in turning every one of you from your wickedness. The text that I want to focus in on most closely in those verses is verse 24. All the prophets proclaimed these days. And I have four questions that I want to ask about that text. Number one, what days? Does Peter mean when he says all the prophets proclaimed these days? Second, in what sense can it be said that all the prophets proclaimed these days? Third, how can a man proclaim what is yet to happen centuries hence? And fourth, what's the response that Peter expects from his hearers in Jerusalem and what should be our response here in Minneapolis? Number one, then. What days does Peter refer to when he says that all the prophets proclaimed these days? In the preceding five verses, from verse 19 to 23, there are three distinct periods of time referred to, and probably these days refers to one or all of those periods. Let's look at them, not in the order they come in the text, but in the order they come historically. The first one is referred to in verse 22. It's a quotation from Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. The Lord will raise up for you a prophet from your brethren, as he raised me up, Moses talking. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul that does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Now, the days referred to here by Moses, 1,400 years earlier, are the days, according to Peter, of the earthly life and ministry of Jesus. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the final fulfillment of this prophecy made that many years earlier 
began its fulfillment. God was raising up a new prophet who would have all the authority of God. And so this first period of time probably extends from the first Christmas when Jesus was born through his life and his ministry to the time of his ascension back to the Father. In verse 26, Peter looks upon this time as already completed. He says, God, having raised up, now that doesn't refer to the resurrection, that refers to the same raising up as we saw in the prophecy from Moses. God, having raised up this servant, as Moses said he would, sent him to you, Jews, first to bless you in turning every one of you from your wickedness. That was the earthly life and ministry of Jesus, the sending of the great prophet, as Moses had predicted God would. And now that period is over. It's gone. The prophet has returned to sit at his father's right hand. The second period in these verses is found in verse 19. Repent. Turn again that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. The prophet is gone. He's returned to the father. But the prophet commissioned his apostles to preach the good news of his forgiveness that he purchased on the cross. And he promised that he would send his Holy Spirit for the refreshment of all those who believe that good news. The times of refreshing, therefore, probably refer to the time beginning with Pentecost and extending through the period of the church, the period in which Forgiveness of sins is preached on the basis of Jesus' death and resurrection and coming to a close at the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the reason I think that the times of refreshing probably refer to the times in which the Holy Spirit is being poured out in response to faith in Christ is because of the close similarity there is between verse 19 of chapter 3 and verse 38 of chapter 2. Notice this parallel. In verse 19, Peter, this is Peter preaching, two different sermons. So we might expect him to say the same thing in both. Repent, verse 19, and turn again that your sins may be blotted out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Verse 38 of chapter 2, repent and be baptized every one of you for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the Holy Spirit. In the one, repent, be forgiven. Receive the Spirit. In the other, repent, be forgiven, experience times of refreshing. And therefore, I conclude that the times of refreshing are the times in which the Holy Spirit is poured out into the hearts of those who respond to the gospel and repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And therefore, the times of refreshing are probably the era from Pentecost to the second coming of our Lord Jesus. The third period of time referred to in these verses is found in verses 20 and 21. This is even more distinct. The final hope that Peter holds out to his listeners is this, namely that God may now again send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for establishing all that God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Now, here's a period of time that begins with the second sending 
of the Lord Jesus to earth. A time for the establishing or the restoration or the bringing to final fulfillment or consummation all that God had spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets. Christ is going to reign as king supreme on earth and of his kingdom there will be no end. And so this period probably begins at the second coming of Jesus, extends on through what is commonly known as the millennium and then on into eternity world without end. Now, when Peter says in verse 24, all the prophets proclaimed these days, I think it would be illegitimate to think that he means to exclude any of these three periods of time. I think that because the first one, namely the earthly ministry of Christ, was in fact proclaimed by Moses and predicted. The last one we saw, namely the time of consummation, was, he says in verses 20 and 21, predicted by the mouth of his holy prophets. The second one, the time of refreshing, isn't mentioned in this text to be explicitly a matter of prophecy, but all we have to do is go back one page and find Peter preaching on that day of Pentecost and we see that these times were indeed prophesied by the prophet Joel. Look at Acts 2, verse 16 and 17. This is the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has fallen on the 120 disciples. They've spoken in other tongues. People think they're drunk. Peter has to explain what's going on. Here's what's going on, verse 16. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, that your sons and your daughters will prophesy and your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Therefore, I conclude that all the days from the coming of Jesus into the world at the first Christmas, right on through the earthly life and ministry of Jesus, through the times of refreshing in which we live, into the age to come after the second coming and on to eternity, all those days were the days that were proclaimed by the prophets beforehand. And now there's something very, very important to get a hold of here if we're going to understand the biblical teaching about prophecy and fulfillment. We often think of prophecy, don't we? Especially in this day when hundreds and hundreds of books are being poured off the press about what everybody and his brother thinks is going to happen. We tend to think of prophecy as relating to what's yet to come and what is now beginning to take place. And we easily forget that what is past for us was the future of the prophets. And what we need to remember is that with the coming of Jesus Christ into the world, the days of fulfillment began. And ever since that Christmas, we've been living in those days. The last days foretold by the prophets are not the 1980s. The last days began in 1 A.D. and have been ever since. This was the uniform teaching of the New Testament. Listen to Paul, 1 Corinthians 10:11. He says the Old Testament and all the events there happened to them by way of an example 
And they were written down for our... Now, who's this our? This is Paul and his friends. They were written down for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages has come. That's Paul talking 2,000 years ago. For Paul, the end of the ages was not 2,000 years hence, 1985, 490, or wherever the prediction has been. The end of the age came with Jesus. When Jesus came, the end came or began to come. This is the way the writer to the Hebrews talks. Listen to Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. In many and various ways, God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, 2,000 years ago, God has spoken to us by a son. The coming of the son into the world marks the beginning of the last days according to New Testament teaching. And it's a great privilege to know ourselves along with Martin Luther and John Calvin and Augustine and Paul and all the apostles to be living in the last days because Joel prophesied in the last days I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. All the prophets looked forward to the day when the Messiah would come. And they knew that when when the Messiah would come, he would reign and there would be a great era of blessing like the world had never known before. And that began at the first Christmas. He has come. His kingdom has been inaugurated. We live in the age of fulfillment and what we anticipate. And we do anticipate what we anticipate at the second coming of Jesus is not something entirely new, but only the consummation of the blessings that we have already begun to enjoy because we live in the age of fulfillment and the Messiah has come and has conquered. Christmas cut history into two ages, the age of promise and the age of fulfillment, so that when Peter says all the prophets proclaimed these days, We understand him to mean the days from Jesus' first coming right on through to the end of the ages, which indeed will never end. These last days, as Hebrews 1, 2 says. Now, the second question that I have to ask to this text is, in what sense can it be said that all the prophets proclaim these days? Now, I debated yesterday whether I should even include this question because I don't know the answer for sure. I have an idea, and I don't know that in a sermon you should raise questions for which you have no answers. But good readers of the New Testament would ask that question. He says all the prophets proclaim these days, so we ought to go back and poke up and find how they do it, right? Well, I have a hard time finding that. Now, on the one hand, most of the prophets... Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah, Malachi, Joel, clear references to the coming of Christ, to the day of refreshing, to the day yet to come when Christ returns. No problem. On the other hand, you've got prophets like Jonah, whose message seems to be wholly taken up with their own particular situation. In his case... Go to Nineveh and tell those people if they don't repent in a few weeks, they've had it. That's it. 
Now, what do you do with Jonah? How did Jonah proclaim these days? I think there's a clue. I'll use Jonah as our, our example because I think if we can figure out Jonah, then we'll have a clue for the others who don't seem to make any explicit reference to these days. Jesus used the prophet Jonah in a remarkable way, didn't he? You remember the text in the Gospels? Luke 11, 29. Jesus says, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the men of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The men of Nineveh will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here, namely Jesus. Now, Jesus pictures Jonah and his life and ministry as a kind of inferior foreshadowing of the later superior life and ministry of Jesus Christ, especially the resurrection of Jesus and the preaching of Jesus. Could it be then that what Peter meant when he said all the prophets proclaimed these days was something like this. Many of the prophets, most of the prophets made explicit references and predictions about the days of the Messiah. But others simply by the way they pictured the intentions of God in history and the conditions in history that have so fallen short of God's conditions imply by that witness that something yet must come, something greater, something better must come. In other words, there is an implicit foreshadowing that if God is who he says he is and these are his intentions for human beings, something yet must come. If so, then that's the way, perhaps, that all the prophets proclaim these days. Some explicitly by prediction, some implicitly by foreshadowings, and all proclaiming these days. Here's the third question, and I think this is probably the most important question to ask of this text, although I may be wrong there. I say that because it's the one that grips my heart and helps my faith the most. The third question is, how can a man proclaim in advance what will happen centuries later? Now, there are two ways to answer that question. And both are true. But if we stopped with the first way, I think we would be left with something very misleading. But I'll start with it anyway. The first way to answer this question is this. A man can't proclaim what will happen centuries later, but God can. And the prophets were inspired by God and God can foresee the future. And therefore, those prophets can proclaim what will happen later. That's a simple solution. Here's the biblical evidence for it. Peter's second letter, chapter one, verse 20. For all of you must first understand this. 
No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the impulse of man. But men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Or as Paul puts it in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture, including the prophetic Scripture, is inspired by God. This is a grand and great and wonderful doctrine of the Christian church that when we read the writings of Scripture, we do not merely hear the words of men, we hear God. And that's a great thing. The words of our text put it most strongly of all, 321, Acts 321. Heaven must receive Jesus until the time for establishing all that God spoke through the mouth. Of his holy prophets. No problem then that they can predict and proclaim what will happen centuries later. A man can't, but God can, assuming God knows the future. I have a book in my study written by a man in this town which devotes. 150 pages to arguing that God does not know the future and cannot know the future acts of men with certainty. I attended a meeting of the Evangelical Theological Society two years ago in Chicago and heard a notable evangelical theologian give an address in which he suggested that the traditional doctrine of the omniscience, all-knowingness, of God should not be construed to mean his omniscience of the future. So I don't take that for granted. It isn't taken for granted today, not even among those who call themselves evangelicals. I admit that I would be hard put to worship a God who did not know what was coming next. Nor can I even imagine such a God with any coherency. And I'm grateful that the scriptures do not ask me either to imagine or to worship such a God because the scriptures say that the only and the true God declares from ancient times things not yet done. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. This is what God says. I am God. There is no other I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand, I will accomplish it. God would not be God if he could not declare from ancient times things not yet done. That's what God wanted to say in Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Therefore, If God inspires a prophet, God and the prophet can proclaim what will take place. That's the first way to answer the question, how can a man say what's going to happen centuries later? Now, if we stopped here, all of that would be true. But I think we would be left with a misleading view of God and only half the biblical teaching. So the second way to answer the question has to be added. Namely, God does not merely know history. God makes history. God creates 
history. If we didn't say this, we might get the impression that God made the world, established laws, and then withdraws, watches, knows, predicts, but does not control, rule, move in history. And that would be very wrong. The text we just read, Isaiah 46.10, says that the reason God can declare from the beginning things not yet done is this. My counsel shall stand because I will accomplish it. I will accomplish it. I will do it. God knows what will happen because he accomplishes what will happen. He does not merely watch the world. He shapes the world. And there are two verses in our text that make that crystal clear. Verses 17 and 18 of Acts 3. Notice that it's Peter's view that the fulfillment of prophecy is not owing to the fact that God has foreknowledge of history, but to the fact that God acts in history. Now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But... What God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ should suffer, he thus fulfilled. Peter's conception is not that God predicts and gets it right. The world is going on on its laws. He predicts it and he does it. And that's why his word always comes true. What God foretold, God fulfilled. God knows the future Because he plans the future. Those very words occur side by side in Peter's first sermon, Acts 2.23. He says to Israel, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So, the really final and ultimate answer to our third question of how a man can proclaim what will take place centuries later is that the prophets were inspired by a God who himself will achieve what he said would take place. My counsel shall stand. I will accomplish my purpose. And that brings us to question number four. What should our response be? What should Peter's listeners' response have been to these things? Now, Peter leaves us in no doubt what he wants as a response. And I don't presume to want anything different. Verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come. From the presence of the Lord. Repent means turn away from banking your hope on all that you can achieve and on all the pleasures of sin and turn and start banking your hope on the promises of Jesus Christ. Stop following all the recommendations of the world for how to get happy And start following the saving commands of Jesus Christ. And there are two great incentives in this text for why everybody here 
should repent from sins we've committed. And those who don't know Jesus as Savior should turn from a life of sin to a life with God. And here's the first incentive. We live in the age of fulfillment. We live in the age when the Messiah has come. He has died for our sins. He has been raised again. Our redemption has been purchased. He has promised to pour out the Holy Spirit of refreshing and cleansing on everybody who turns from his sin and trusts Jesus. Repent, therefore, and you will experience a blotting out of all sin and times of refreshing for your heart and your family and all your relationships. That's the first incentive. Here's the second incentive. The God who is calling us to repent is a God of awesome power. The God who is the Lord of history, who proclaims the future and makes the future. And that power should cause us to turn from sin and flee to Christ for two reasons. If we don't, all that power is against us. As Peter said, who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. But, second reason, if we do turn and repent, all the power that has shaped this universe and is now shaping every detailed event in this world is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? And that is a great incentive to turn from our sin and follow the Lord Jesus. What a great time of year to turn from sin, from the lordship of self and sin, to the lordship, the saving lordship of Jesus Christ. And perhaps on this Sunday, this candle was lit just for you.